Hello, Hospitality MD podcast listeners. It's Kyle here, your host, back with another episode. This week's interview is with Rich Gandhi, president and CEO of GHM Properties and the chairman and co founder of Reform Lodging. Rich has experience owning, operating, and developing hotels, and more recently, leading the charge at Reform Lodging, which is a hotel owners advocacy group designed to fight for the best interests of hotel owners and and hospitality industry franchisees across the country. In this interview, you'll hear a different perspective than we normally get an opportunity to share on the podcast directly from hotel ownership. What is it like to be a hotel owner during the worst crisis on record for the hotel industry? What are the dynamics between brands and franchisees? And how does that play a role in how your experience will be as a guest and as a team member? Oh, and that complimentary breakfast that they told you about complimentary for who we are going to dive into all of these topics right here on today's episode of the hospitality md podcast so please keep an open mind listen and learn something from this hotel owner we all need to come together as an industry in order to lead the recovery now before we present the interview please be sure to leave us a review on apple Podcasts, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends This is a do not miss episode, so sit back, relax, and enjoy. So thank you so much, first and foremost, for uh, sitting down with us. I'm super, super excited to chat with you. Love what you're doing with Reform Lodging. Uh, and it's just a pleasure to have you on Hospitality MD. So thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. So uh, I want to start, Rich, by asking you about your, your, your start here before we get into what you're, what you're doing now. Um, you know, I, listening to your feature on Advantage Hotels podcast, hearing that you're first generation, that you built your hotel portfolio from scratch. Why don't you tell me a little bit about you coming up um, and, and getting started in hospitality? Um, I think it's an immigrant story standard for most people who come in from overseas uh, to make a new life uh, and my story is similar to them. Um, I came in when I was 13 uh, after my father had passed away. And uh, um, I actually lived with my grandparents. Uh, they owned a little motel in Atlantic City. Um, we, I learned the business inside out with them, ran off to college, worked in various fields out there, uh, professionally, capital markets to... Um, finance and whatnot, and then realized that, you know, I, I want to get back into the hospitality space and uh, did my first deal in 2005 and haven't looked back since. So you started out in hospitality when you were 13 years old. Well, you started. I wasn't the owner. My grandfather was. It was a small 18-room motel in Atlantic City. But you were, I mean you were there, you were in it. You, I mean, I, I think that you yes. could probably consider that your first experience, right? 
Oh yes, because uh, we live there, we we work there. We, I went to school from the yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is that is my first hands-on experience, if you would. You know, a a lot of people having lived and worked in in a motel uh, would have probably said. I never want to go back. I never want to do this ever again. They probably would have said, you know, this is, uh, I'm, I'm over it. You know, it's, it's, it's too much, especially, you know, when, when you're a kid and, and you're doing that, but after you kind of started your education, you started your life, you decided to come back to hospitality. Why did you make that decision to come back? Um, I basically looked at it as, at, you know, uh, like we were talking earlier that uh, way back when, when I got into the hospitality field, we were able to make a very good return. I mean, it was one of the riskier assets, but, you know, based on like, you know, if you're looking at different sectors and businesses, strip malls to office buildings, medical plazas or or multifamily you may have, um, it actually provided a decent 25 to 30% return uh, on your investment. And and if you worked hard, sometimes even better. Um, those days are long gone today. I mean, today you're barely making seven to eight percent on your money. And that is after you guarantee the loan and you put up all the effort and 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 it's a 24 seven uh, kind of position. Right. And, so, and yeah. Yeah. So so your experience building because your founder, CEO, president of GHM Properties, right? So this is your, this is that first deal that you mentioned, right? Is, is, was the starting foundation of GHM. So tell me a little bit about building it up, where it is now kind of, do you own and operate all of your properties? Are you a third-party management company? Like what is GHM? How was it building it up? Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, like most people, uh, you know, when, when I did my first deal, of course, um, we did it with uh, some investors and and uh, it was a hard road, if you would, to, to pave, okay? Um, we basically had to start dealing with investor relations to, to running the asset, making sure they get their returns, you know, you were wearing a lot of hats. And with that came a lot of complications, especially through the 9 and 10 recession. At that point, you really found out who stood by you, who were your real friends, who were not your real friends. Um, As time progressed, um, when the recession was coming to our end, I basically believed that the hotels needed to be renovated and turned around immediately before anybody else could and needed to manage um, investors to put in capital, right? Um, And nobody wants to put in capital. They're like, yeah, you haven't given us a return in so many years. And, you know, it's not fair for you to ask us money. Why didn't you give us our money back? We don't want to do business with you. We think you've stolen money, all kinds Mm -hmm. of stuff, right? And, and, And you're like, look, I can't deal with this. It's too aggravating. Uh, there came a point in 2012, I basically just said, hey, guys, you can have it all. I'll walk away for $1. Forget my investment. I'll start from scratch. And that's exactly what I did. Um, wow. I restarted. And uh, 
Uh, I never looked back after that. Uh, today, we own and operate a few assets, and we don't do third-party management. We have no interest in doing third-party management. I just have been burnt by the experience that I had through that recession. So, you know, it's like one of those things that you don't want to see yourself in that situation again. So you, your first property, you had that for what, seven years, right? Up until you walked away, something like that. Um, And after putting all that sweat, blood and tears into starting this, and you, you know, rightfully, right, probably thought this is going to be the foundation of how I keep building and building. And it, it ended up with, with you just leaving, you got no return. It was tell me about that feeling. Were you broken by that? Like, how did you, how did you bounce back so quickly? Cause I, I feel like that's a, a lot of people would have been crushed by that. Well, it is a, a hard feeling. It was hard to part, right? Yeah. First thing was to mentally program yourself to say, you know what, I am going to be comfortable from walking away. And, and once you get your mindset to, to basically not get emotional about it, you can walk. And that's what it was. It, it took me a long time to basically walk away from that. And once I did do that, I mean, you know, I never looked back. I could say that I was able to make decisions much faster. Um, I can make a split se- second decision today um, about my business without going to consult an investor, right? I, I can basically call my own shots. It's my destiny. Um when you're dealing with investors and, and whatnot, you always have, oh, I have to ask them permission because it's a big thing. It's outside my my scope. You know, I have limitations. My hands are tied. It's just like you're saying you have a boss. <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, that perception, right? You're a business owner. You've got no boss anymore. That's what you would think, right? When you're when you're going into this this real estate adventure and this hotel adventure. But sure enough, you found that not to be the case. So you were dealing with people who just had more equity uh, in, invested into the into the property. What were your your not true? Biggest... We were actually equal. We were actually equal. Hmm. We were. It wasn't even that that one was hot more than me. It was that we were equal. And and what ended up happening is that uh, you know it was a trust factor, right? Um, something basically makes them feel that oh you're not doing something uh, right. You know, uh, I can't get into a lot of nitty gritty detail about it, but I can mention to you that let's put it this way. People who invest, usually who invest, who are working professionals who are investing, they feel that this is another source to make money. They don't understand that this is a business. Sometimes you make a few dollars, you lose a few dollars. But, you know, you have to go in with that rationale, like a stock market. You know, you invest in the stock market. You put your 401k. Sometimes it's going up. Sometimes it's going down. It's a roller coaster. Like take this 2020 total roller coaster for your 401k. Right. I mean, depending on what you were invested in, uh, you could have come out ahead. You could have lost big time. Right. And, and that's basically what it is that a lot of people don't seem to understand what it takes to operate a hotel or what it's really required. Um, you know, it's not just, oh, you wrote a check and and now you're like made of money. A lot of times employees feel that hotel owners are uh, extremely well-to-do and they have an unlimited supply of money. 
right? And they don't seem to understand that, you know, it's not always that you can look from your pocket and say, oh, um, you know, I am not making, I'll give you an example. I had an employee reach out to me recently and said that I would like a raise. And I said, um, ma'am, think about it that, you know, you're asking me for a raise in a pandemic when you are making well above minimum wage. Um, you know, she was around 14 and change for front desk. And I said, there's not much work to do lately. Um, I can't afford a raise, but, you know, and, and, and of course she started belittling me and saying that, you know, I don't care about my employees and my people and, and whatnot. And I said, have you thought about what is taking the owner? Put yourself in my shoes and say, what is the owner going through? Where is the money coming from? Because, of course, people like the Choice CEO going out saying to the world that, oh, 30% is the break even for a hotel. How does that resonate in people's mind? And that is exactly what this employee was throwing at me. She actually had heard the the CEO of Choice say that it's that 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 they were supposed to be getting a decent paycheck because break even is only thirty percent, so everything else is gravy. Right. And so she choice- heard that, and being a front desk person, she was probably like looking at the the PMS, like, oh, here we're thirty percent here, thirty percent here, we're good. Now this actually leads me into a question I had planned for you because our audience for the for Hospitality MD is made up of a lot of operations people, a lot of you know, you've got your front office managers, GMs, stuff like that. So we don't have a huge base for owners. So I wanted to um, give you the opportunity to basically give from an owner's perspective, uh, what your like message to your teams are just to hotel team members who are hired by owners and also a message to hotel guests as well. Uh, if, if you have one, yeah. I think, uh, you know, you, you have an interesting perspective that can help us all empathize with one another in this industry? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I will say that, you know, as a owner of a property, it is very hard that you have to juggle with a lot of things that you, you don't know how you can juggle, right? Uh, a lot of the juggling comes about with state and federal regulations, Lenders, requirements, franchises, overburdening requirements, depending on what franchise that you have, right? There are some franchisors that are very easy to work with, okay? They are the most friendly, uh, and I believe um, they have the best practices. But then there are some that are out there in their own world. They, they actually are not really, they, they think from their C-suite. Right. And they are up there making decisions for the rest of the country. I mean, take a look at McDonald's, for example. Right. They're having their franchisees revolt on them right now. And we are not talking, you know, one, two or three. They're talking almost 60, 70 percent of the franchisees are against McDonald's parent corporation. That is a problem. Right. And, yeah, and, they're the only ones, they're the ones who make their business and the same with hotels as well. And, you know, franchisors believe that the, 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 that, that the, uh, their brand runs the hotel, but that's not the case. What, what really is the case is that, you know, 
these brands don't realize that the hotel owner just works equally hard, including the hotel's employees, in bringing the business. Because what does the franchisor do? They provide web services, they provide connectivity and whatnot. But you know what? In today's day and world, you don't need all that. Anybody can do it. Boutique brands come out all out of the woodwork every day and and they can connect with whoever, right? I mean, and, and you can have Expedia, Travelocity, whatever. You know, people don't realize that um, all these uh, OTAs, which is, you know, like Expedias of the world, is controlled by two companies. You have Expedia and Priceline control all the OTAs in the world, 95% of them. So Expedia owns Travelocity, Orbit, um, Agencia, just to name a few, right? Right. Yeah. On the flip side, Booking.com, Agoda, Priceline, a whole bunch of other stuff is all owned by, 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 by Booking. So when people don't see it that, oh, this is a different website that's sending it, that's not true. These are all masks to basically avoid federal government regulation, right? They basically, if they're too big, what they do is they internally set up competitors amongst themselves, but they are the same people competing against themselves. So is there real competition? Well, it's they have a monopoly now. They have, they have monopoly over this over this industry now in, in terms Correct. of OTAs. Correct. So so what ends up happening is, you know, the percentages that you have to give I basically believe that the franchisors are not generating the revenue that the OTAs generate. What should really happen is the franchisor says, let's, as an example, we'll say 10% of your gross room revenue belongs to the franchisor. That's the contract that you would sign with them. Let's just say, right? So if you made 100000 for that month, your bill should be $10,000. That's not the case. Some franchisors' bills end up being close to 19 to 22% of that franchise fee. I'll tell you how they add those up. They come up with all these hidden charges, ancillary fees that they make up, and they will be made off system fee, uh, connection fee. For a reservation that comes from, let's say, Expedia, they will charge you $3 on top of the Expedia reservation saying that's a connection charge. Not to mention, they're already collecting 10% of the revenue. So if the revenue came from Expedia to, to the hotel, for example, let's say it's $100 plus tax. And, and if it's coming in, the hotel is going to end up paying, let's say, $20 to Expedia. So it's down to 80 But the franchisor is going to charge on the full $100, even though the hotel is only going to net 80 Okay? So on that $100, they want 10%. Right. That's their contracted price. That's ten dollars. Then on top of that, then they'll charge you a three dollar connection charge. Then they'll say, oh, there's a point. Uh, we want to make sure that the customer gets some points. So let's get the customer some points. We're going to charge you another five dollars for the points. It's five percent of your ADR. It's a hundred dollar ADR. So that's another five dollars you give. Then you, they will say, oh, you know, they basically need to be provided Everything under the sun, credit card service charge is, is the hotel owner's charge, but it's on the full $100. How is it that we are not even collecting mm. all that money? When you really look at it today, there was a position paper that we did. If you go to www.reformlodging.org, you'll see a lot of uh, position papers that we've put up. And you will notice that um, 
it is not worth it for a hotel owner if you are a, a certain level of brand without naming any brands to be associated with that brand because those brands are have not caught up to the times. They have not been able to reinvent themselves and they should be gone. So, um, okay, so th- this is crazy, right? Because when we talk about, you know, I, I think right the perception that's you know i i also want you to kind of give that message to the to the guests and the staff but we we start talking about this perception that you know the public has a perception that the brands themselves are funneling money into the properties and that when you stay at a holiday inn express that ihg is essentially uh owning and operating that asset themselves, the public has that misperception. And then, you know, I'm sure, like you were stating, the the staff members have a perception that if you own a hotel, then, oh my God, you must just be filthy rich because because you're a hotel owner. It seems almost inachievable. so what do you what do you have to say to those to those uh, guests that that you serve um, coming from the perspective of a hotel owner and then to your to your staff members if they could if, if you guys could just see eye to eye what would you tell them to to make well, it easier? Well, first the the perception you're right that uh, hotel owners are are the real owners individuals like just like the guests they are the real owners it's not a big multi-million dollar corporation that's an owner of um, a hotel 98 percent of the hotels in this country are owned by other people than the franchisor from those 98 percent if you look at it there is roughly 60% of the hotels are owned by individuals or families, small families. And the rest are, of course, the the big conglomerates that are owned by like the big uh, hotel ownership companies like HPT or, or, you know, Ashford or Hersha. Now, they, they, they are publicly traded company. They own the remaining hotels. But usually they're not the local hotels that you see off the highway. Right. Right. Most of the hotels that are owned by these publicly traded REITs are usually in gateway cities or in uh, really high end markets um, uh, next to universities or or medical centers. They basically usually, usually um, uh, work with the institutional products, which is Hilton's, Marriott's, Hyatt's and whatnot. Right. They don't uh, even bother uh, with the other product out there right because they basically believe that for them to preserve their equity they need to be in the upper echelon of the product out there because that's the customer they want to cater to plus the there's more business travelers pay more for uh, a, a travel visit if you would i mean if you had a customer who had an opportunity i mean it's mindset even yourself if you were traveling and you had an opportunity to go stay at i don't know um a a mid-scale hotel for a hundred dollars and then hilton comes around the corner and sends out a promo for 120 dollars where are you gonna go i mean you're not wrong i mean i'm gonna again it's 
right you have this infrastructure the business travel that was there right they're gonna go they're gonna stay and the the rates aren't that far off either from what you see especially now so so then it it you know kind of begs the question of why would you stay at you know at one of those hotels and i think it's a matter of preference but then you talk about the franchise fees and royalty fees and marketing fees and connection fees being taken and it does sound like your 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 return on certainly diminished over time now for a guest what would you what would you want them to understand when they walk through the doors of your hotel and if you had to speak directly to them what would you say to one of your guests um that's a very hard question. I, you know, there's a lot of things I would like to say to some of these guests because depending on who walks in and what they are expecting, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times uh, a customer is walking in lately and they think that they are paying for a room at the Ritz. Okay. They don't care. They're like, if, you know, if I'm paying you a hundred dollars for the room or $150 for the room that they want Ritz level service, you know, they, they want a bell captain. They want this. Oh, somebody's going to take my luggage up. They think it's like the movies when in the movies, they usually show, show five-star hotels. They have those type of luxurious uh, amenities. When you walk into your, your mid-scale hotels, your select service hotels, that's not even possible. Right. I mean, you know, you can't afford that. And you know, it, they have to know what they're paying, you know, and set their expectations low. And even, you know, in a, in a pandemic situation, they are actually trying, hotel operators are trying very, very hard to make sure that their stay is, is very comfortable and safe. They're trying to make sure that the place is as clean as possible. But, you know, um, a lot of times what ends up happening is they basically start screaming at a employee, oh, how come you're not wearing a mask? Well, they probably took it down to just, you know, sometimes if you try to breathe in one of these masks, it's, it gets very hot. They might have taken it down for a minute and you walked in at that very second. Right. And they put it back on or they did not have a mask on. There's no reason to complain about it. You, you, you should use your own common sense, if you would, and say, hey, at least I'm six feet to 10 feet away. And I'm not going to be you know, exposed to any virus should they be contagious. Right. I mean, you have to have some level of compassion a lot of times the customers don't have any compassion. They expect more for nothing. And, you know, I'll tell you who's to be blamed for that. We, we as hotel operators empowered the brands to do all that. Well, now that's what Reform Lodging does. Reform Lodging is actually there to basically empower the hotel operators to operate hotels efficiently and think about what affects them and how they want to operate it. You know, like breakfast costs. It's overburdening. Yeah. Breakfast is a very big expense item on these hotels, PLs. We throw so much food away. We can feed third world countries with that kind of food that we end up throwing away in this country. You know, I'll tell you, Rich, I, uh, I, in, in Chicago, actually, I was working at, it was actually a triple brand. It was a Hampton, a home two and a Hilton garden in, but the Hilton garden did not have complimentary breakfast. So we had, um, a convention it was the it was the muslim american society convention they came and what we found and actually the same thing happened with several of the sports teams that we hosted what we found was that you would have you know six people in a in a room who would come down for breakfast piled plates high with food 
and then you find the garbage overflowing with with wasted food. I think you're totally right. You know, when you have a a, a breakfast like this, um, you know, obviously the guests really appreciate it. I think what you know, like you said, the brands have kind of set that expectation. Um, and nowadays you can't go to a hotel and just have pastries and coffee. It has to be, you know, two hot items, one meat item, this, this, all these requirements. So with that being said, you know, we have all this waste and all these, these requirements. Why don't you tell us about the evolution of breakfast? Like when you first started out in, 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 in hotels, what were those requirements like and how have they evolved over time uh, and how that affected you? When we first started off, I mean, the breakfast was very simple. Coffee, some some danishes, um, some muffins, and maybe a bagel. It was pure cold continental. Sometimes you had cereal and milk. Um, but, you know, over time, with all the hot breakfast amenities and, and everything that you're adding, um, and it just keeps the cost just escalating. I mean, if I look at some of my hotels, um, I'm serving close to 55 to 60 items daily. Now I got to make sure that. that and what kind of brand, what brands are we talking about here? Just to get a feel for it, just in terms of. Um, so it, it would be, let's take a Holiday Inn Express to a Quality Inn. Um, you, you know, they basically require those type of uh, uh, breakfast, right? I mean, and, and wow. not to mention that 55 to 60 items, there's a lot of items. And God forbid you got, you do not have, or you ran out. Let's just say boiled eggs. And you brought up sports teams. Let's say you had a sports team come in. You probably had an order that came in of, let's say, four dozen eggs. On an average, you don't, people don't eat four dozen eggs in one day. But if you have a sports team, it'll evaporate because each kid will eat two to three, maybe four eggs. And, and you're not talking too long. It'll be a dozen kids who ate it. You don't have any more eggs left. On an average... Four dozen eggs will last you three to four days. You have right. a certain shelf life for this. So what ends up happening is auto shutdown initiated. You don't have those eggs, okay? The complaints up the wazoo. Oh, you don't have eggs. Breakfast was really bad. So what does a brand do? The brand has empowered the customer to expect it for free. Say, you know what? Let's just pick up the phone and complain to the customer care and say their service was bad and this and that. Customer care will automatically refund them the money and charge the hotel the refund charge, but then also charge the hotel a penalty for handing that complaint. The complaints this year have gone up drastically. Most customers don't even care that you're in a pandemic. I'll give you an example. You know, our township, our governor, we have jurisdiction requirements that we cannot have any food items being dispensed for safety reasons. Oh, so they say no. So basically, no breakfast. Auto shutdown canceled. Local restrictions. You not serving breakfast. We had that posted upon check-in, and the customers upset. We are like, you can go to another hotel. You don't have to check in. You know, if you find breakfast somewhere else, go to another hotel. What that evolved into is customer care issues are outrageous today. We are not IHOP. We are not Denny's. We are hotel operators. Our job is to provide a clean and safe stay. It's a bed. It's the experience of a bed. If you want to be a five-star hotel with a full breakfast and a la carte menu, like, you know, the, the big Marriott's and the Hilton's and whatnot, we will do that. But we are smaller hotels. 
typically 80 to 100 rooms. We are not equipped to, to run the type of breakfast service and everything they need. And it's a big expense item. On an average, on an 80-room hotel, the breakfast line item is roughly 125 to 150000 a year in expense. So, right. So, okay. So we're, we, we talked about the $5 for this fee and the $10 here in the OTA commissions on a per occupied room basis. What's your average breakfast cost? About five fifty to six. So, wow. five fifty to $6 per room chopped off of the, uh, the rate essentially because of breakfast. And granted, you know, I, I think that again, like we mentioned, guests have come to expect breakfast. What about people who would say, uh, well, actually, let me let me go into this first. So with that being said, you know, reform lodging, right, which is you've built to help uh, with your colleagues to help uh, advocate for hotel owners who are experiencing the same things that you are to ex- basically to to try and rebuild the trust and relationship between the brands and the franchisors and the franchisees. Is that correct? That is correct. So what the idea is. The reform lodging is is out there taking the fights of the hotel operators to the brands because there's nobody to do that. You could say AHLA. We believe that AHLA is great for the industry, but AHLA is there for the franchisor, not for the franchisee. Well, what about like an, uh, an AHOA? They're an owner's advocate group, right? Why not them? And AHOA, I don't want to, AHOA you know, has lost its way. Okay. There, that is our belief. That is our opinion. But it's I don't think that they have. They do do a lot of things that do help hotel owners. Don't get me wrong on that. But you know they are not willing to pick the fights where they are fighting against the franchisor. And I believe that's because the franchisors fill their coffers on an mm-hmm. annual basis, which is donations or whatnot, because it's a nonprofit, right? We at Reform Lodging do not take any donations from from the franchisor. That is one of our uh, mandatory rules that we will not do that. We don't want to be uh, construed in a way where they can point fingers or our membership base would basically say that, that we are influenced by any way by the brands. We are here for the membership base, which is the hotel operators, not the brands. You know, and and I've seen some really great things that you were doing. One thing that really stood out to me about Reform Lodging was you guys had, I saw a letter that you lobbied to, I believe it was the Cincinnati Police Department or the Attorney General for uh, justice for the death of Yogesh Patel, who was a hotelier who was murdered in his in, on his property. Um, and I thought that was great. Am, am I correct on that? I, I believe I saw it wasn't Cincinnati. It was uh, in Mississippi. I think the name of the town was Cleveland. I could be wrong. Uh, I think maybe Cleveland, Ohio. I was thinking Cincinnati. Okay, so right. so I think it was yeah, Cleveland, so, Mississippi. And and yes, um, we basically my colleague Sagar uh, was in communication with the family, and we basically resonated that this this sort of stuff happens regularly. And it's always the hotel owner that takes the hit for it. Um, also, laws that these um, governors pass out, right? It's basically they're shooting from the hip. I mean, take it for example. Governors are passing out laws saying that nobody is allowed to be evicted from a hotel once they've stayed 30 days because of they put a moratorium on evictions because they're saying um, 
where they're going to go via in a pandemic. Okay. If they can so if they're pay, saying that they're because of 30 days, they become a tenant. They're no longer yeah. a guest. They become a tenant of the property. That was supposed to apply to apartments. The police department is basically saying, we don't know that where it applies to apartments or hotels. We just say everything's residential. We're like, no, 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 no. This is not a living space. This Auto shutdown initiated. Now we have to fight through court. Auto shutdown canceled. Powering okay? off. That means as hotel operators has to spend more money Powering to on. people who are basically staying for free. Mind you, at on top of that, they can't be charged any room revenue because you're not going to collect it. They don't have any money. Right. The brands say you can't put the room in the system as a free room. They want you to charge room revenue on it. So now you're paying franchise fees on revenue that you're not going to collect. You're going to pay sales tax on revenue you're not going to collect. On top of that, the hotel operator also has to bear the cost of them using their utilities, eating breakfast or or using whatever facilities, cable TV, internet, and whatnot. And God forbid they can't they can't use any of these things. They file a complaint with customer care, and now they, we have to deal with that on top of that, and brings the hotels scores down. So this is because I nobody's talking about this sort of thing from from what I can tell, and and it's. Uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate because a lot of the times we talk about the guest experience, we talk about the employee experience. This is something that we talk about a lot in the hospitality and hotel industry, but rarely do we talk about the owner experience. And it sounds like, um, you know, I actually, it was either you or Sagar when I was listening to the other show, would you made a great point about who is the, the direct customer of the hotel brands? The franchisees, right? Because yeah. they're the ones who are you're they're that's the most yeah. direct straight line from the brand to the customer, right? What what the brand doesn't understand, what the reality is, the brand needs to understand that without us hotel operators and owners, they have no product to sell because we don't have to give our product to them. So what is ending up happening is there's a mass exodus in the next two to three years. A lot of hotels are not going to be affiliated with brands anymore. And to do that, to do that, you have to raise awareness. Now, what we also have to do is these franchisors, you know, have also done a lot of lobbying to the banking industry to basically say, oh, we basically bring all these customers. They don't bring any customers. The hotel brings the customer. Do you think a customer, I'll give you an example. If you're loyal to, I'm going to make this up, let's say a Hampton Inn, okay? And, um, Let's say you want to stay, you're taking a, uh, a vacation, you're going to Daytona Beach, right? And you say, oh, but you know what? There is a, a Days Inn right on the water. Uh, there's a Hampton Inn on the highway. Which one are you going to pick? You're on vacation. You're going to pick the waterfront property. Bingo. You're going to pick it's the not location. the brand. It's yeah. the location that is bringing the customer. It's not the brand. The brand brings the customer when you're in a business location. That would be you're in a, you're in a business environment. There's no destination space, if you would. You know, it's that's what's bringing the customer. And brands need to get that programming right in their mindset that you know what the franchisees and the locations that they're putting up these assets is bringing the customer. So we need to treat our franchisees right. There's some franchisors that treat their customers great. I mean, Red Roof is one of those. I mean, if you talk to Red Roof, 
they are always there with you. Any issue you have, they will help you solve it. Same thing with Best Western. They're always there to help and protect their franchisees. Some of the other ones I have to think twice about, and I won't name those. Right. So a couple things here. So when 2019, 2018, before this, right, when revenues were good, everybody was happy, right? Or is or has it has there been these problems even leading up to the pandemic? Um, because it sounds like the pandemic, if there were problems, has just exacerbated this beyond anything. Like, for example, has the pand has the brands given any sort of relief or any sort of um, uh, deferment on their fees or anything during this time when revenue is completely down and the market is decimated? Has there some been any brand, some brands have done very good? To the have been very good to the franchisees have given um, exceptional um, uh, consideration deferrals or or forgiveness on on fees that would be Red Roof and Best Western per se. Some other brands like to dangle carrots in front of you. That would be Choice, um, and what they would say is, "We'll give you a deferral on your fees to pay, but we want you to sign a contract that you're going to be extending your." life of the license for another 10 years. Why choice? Do you feel that you're going to lose this potential location because your service was atrocious from day one? Maybe that's what it is. And that is what fascinating. That is what it is. They like to dangle some carrots. There's some brands feel that they don't need to provide any, any consideration, but some brands, if they want to provide consideration, they want to dangle these carrots to extend the life of the license so they can say that, oh, we, we got these new licenses. It's all for the stockholders. Um, it was on my podcast with Patrick, you know, who's the real master here, right? Is it the franchisee? Is it the franchisor? Is it the stockholder? We know who it is, right? And, and you know, the way we look at it, the franchise, the franchisor has a master that's a stockholder. And we, are, the franchisee being the uh, franchisor, I should say, the middleman is treating us franchisees as their slaves. You feel like you're in the 1800s. So I think this shatters a lot of misperceptions, right? Because uh, again, you know, when people think about, you know, a hotel owner, you think you've got your own business, so you get to call all the shots. This is you got all this money to play around with. You you know, life is great. Everything's good. But there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes that that people just simply don't know about. So you and your colleagues at Reform Lodging are, are trying to make this relationship better for the time being. But you do say that you think that your prediction is that brands or franchisees will start to disassociate with brands over the next several years. In your opinion, what is the value of a brand in a post-pandemic uh, hotel industry? I don't think much because you know what brands perform and what brands didn't perform, right? I mean, if the brand is so powerful, why aren't these hotels able to make money? Why is there mass um, uh, bankruptcies being filed across the country uh, for these take iconic hotels, half the hotels in New York City? Look at them. Majority yeah. of them are either closing. They're never going to reopen their doors. 
because it's just not worth it. Or they're just fed up with their brands. And they just said, we'd rather not be a hotel with associated with certain brands. We, we, you know, we just dissect that and we walk away, right? I mean, that's basically what it's coming down to. Majority of the people are walking away from the franchisors for one reason. There's no value that the franchisee is receiving. It's supposed to be a give and take. Right. A lot of these franchisors have made it a one-way street. What other fee can we add on to the franchisor to basically squeeze a few extra dollars? Why do you think the franchisor mandates, you know, what you want for, um, you know, to the very last bit that they want you to buy the cups for coffee that have the Hampton Inn logo or the Choice logo? Not saying that Hampton Inn does that, okay? But I'm just saying because they basically want to market themselves at the location of the franchisee. Why, why doesn't the hotel just call itself, let's just call it the... The, the Daytona Beach Inn, for example. They can market themselves. What do they need the brand for? Right? They, there's that disassociation. Right. That, so, so brands need the franchisee. The franchisee needs the brand to provide support and help and to help grow the business. Not so they can basically make it in revenue stream. There are some franchisors that are basically double and triple charging their customers on even the products that they sell. Take Choice Hotels. They've been sued uh, in federal court in Philadelphia, if you've seen. I actually and haven't seen it. Choice Hotels has been sued by their franchisees. Over 100 franchisees have sued them. Um, and they basically are sued for one reason, that they basically are also double and triple dip dipping on their contracts. They basically mandate hey, you need to basically use this pen. I can go buy this pen from Walmart. It's the same gel pen pro, whatever, from Walmart, let's say for 10 cents a pen. Choice wants to sell me that same pen for 15 cents. Why? It's the same pen. Right, so they mandate it in your franchise agreement that you have to go no, through. No, they vendor? do not. They basically make it a brand standard. That's how they mandate it. They work mm -hmm. around it. To basically charge that extra five cents so they can basically make an additional five cents. Now convert that into the number of pens that they're forcing each hotel to buy every year. So all those products, when you worked at a hotel, you saw all the number of promotional items that the hotel showed up with. That's what it was. Or take all the furniture that goes in a guest room. They mandated why, why does every hotel look the same? And they all have the same furniture if you go to a certain brand. Right. Because they're mandating it. They're getting they're called vendor rebates. They are forcing vendors to give them kickbacks so they can basically make more money off the franchisees. And then they force them to replace it every seven years. So what about when, when somebody, what if I were to tell you, but they have to do that because then the guest isn't going to have a good experience if they don't have that. Is it not about the guest experience for the brands? Like what, what's your perception on that? At so what that, is, that, that to a certain extent is true, that you need certain, um, consistency for guest experience. But you know what? They can have the consistency by doing that, but there's no reason to put a markup on it. Mm -hmm. So if I have to buy this pen from Walmart for 10 cents, as long as I meet that brand standard of 10 cents, I should be able to buy from Walmart. Why am I forced to buy from your franchise, from the vendor that you specify? There's no reason to. Right. So if the guest experience asset is the pen itself, 
That's that's okay. what's the pe- the guest experience, and that's the brand standard. In theory, if it, if it was being done for the right reasons to take care of the guest and provide a brand consistency, then it wouldn't matter where you got it from. But what you're saying is it's almost price gouging to take advantage of the Correct. owners of the hotels, and that's 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 not good. And a lot of people don't don't know about that. I do. I, I want to go back to this breakfast letter here uh, before we wrap up because I think. You, it, this is a well-written letter, right? I've got it right here in front of me. And you're not just saying we no more breakfast. We're banning breakfast across the board. We don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. You're, you're really, it seems like you're trying to provide some common ground and work with them to say, okay, for each level of hotel, here's something we can do. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I thought was very interesting was the similar to full service hotels, other brand segments should be able to charge a certain amount for breakfast and pass down the cost to the guest tiered by the level of breakfast service. So for a cold continental, you said, for example, $2 per person, hot continental three, and then a full hot buffet, $5 per person. So based on what you told me earlier about how it's costing you almost $556 per occupied room for breakfast, you're not even tr- trying to profit off of the guests in this scenario. You're just saying we can't keep bearing the burden of these ever increasing breakfast mandates. Is that correct? That is correct. All we are saying is, look, whatever level of service they want, they can pay for it. It's like when you go get a ticket at an airline, right? You get a t- ticket at the airline, you can get the base seat at the economy. Then there's economy plus. Then there's economy with extra leg room. Right, the plus with the leg room, the United has that, and then you have the right. business class and first class. You pay for what you want, right? It's the same airline, so we basically are saying the same thing: that why don't we do that? Why don't we put out something that it basically cuts this expense? What it also does is it's more environmentally friendly. There's less wastage. Mm-hmm. Now people had to pay an additional amount. You will also get the right amount of room count. How many people did you remember when you were checking in? They would say, oh, there's only one person in the room. And then you find out they're 50. Uh, time and time again, every day, uh, despite fire code as well, you know. Oh, exactly. So so this is what we are doing, that we bring raise awareness to that. We, you, we set a system, maybe give them vouchers or whatnot. Oh, you want two breakfast tickets? This is the level of service of breakfast you need? No problem. We'll charge you for that. And at check-in, we give you the different vouchers. End of story. Right. And, and it's, 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 you're not saying, cause you go to a, you know, a Hilton hotels and resorts, right. Brand, the Hilton brand, Marriott brand, whatever your full service hotel, even a double tree or something like that. And some breakfast buffets are $25 per person. And yeah. we know it's not costing them. So when you go to a full service hotel and they say, we're charging you for Wi-Fi, we're charging you $25 for breakfast, we're charging you this much for self park, we're charging you this much for valet. And I get it, you know, full service hotels are different. However, again, like I said, this is not even an attempt to make more revenue. This is just an attempt and an offering uh, 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 to say, we're just trying to survive. Maybe if we, this simple solution can help us still give the guests breakfast if they want it. We're not taking it away. We want the guests to have their breakfast. We want to have that experience if they want it, but it's just too much in its current state. And 
for everybody listening, I will, if it's okay with you, Rich, to, I'll keep this letter in the description of the video so anybody can take a look at it if they want. Sure. And um, you can put our website out there, whoever wants to join it. Uh, you know, look, we had 2,000 plus members. We started in April of this year. Think about it. In April, we started, we have over 2,000 members today. And it's growing and we need more members to grow. Membership is very reasonably priced and that's that's all it is. We just need new members. And for the members, right, no uh, donations, no monetary investment is coming from any of the brands. So you're truly looking out for the best interest of the hotel owners uh, in, in what you do, what you lobby and what your what your goals are for reform lodging. And I will, uh, I'll, I'll leave you with this and I'm going to ask you one more question. Uh, actually I want to do two. Uh, would you do this all over again? And would you have made this for your first deal in 2021? Would you do this again? If you had to start all over again in the hospitality space, right? No. Would you do it all over again? No, not a chance. Wow. That's I mean, that sucks to hear that, that somebody who's dedicated your life, essentially since you were 13 years old in the hospitality industry, you're saying that the current state of affairs, you would just not, you would not even consider uh, doing this anymore. And tell me why that is. It's just not worth it. The amount of aggravation that goes into it, it is just not worth it. They, it's too much work um, on the operator standpoint. and for very little pay. I mean, there's no, the risk and reward concept is just, uh, the chart is very uh, bad in the hotel operator's standpoint because the risk is very high and the reward is not there. It's almost non-existent. I mean, what reward? Let, let me ask you this. All this PPP money that these brands uh, were talking about getting, what relief did the brand get? The brands get bailouts from the government themselves. Right, right. Right. They went and got bailouts from the federal government themselves. What did the owners get? Zilch. We ended up having to fight and and lobbying to senators and congressmen to finally get our way. So this PPP2 rolled out where it basically states it is prioritized to all hotel operators and restaurant owners because what happened the first go around the big companies took all that money away so the little guys like us got nothing and that's exactly what happened and why do you think that they, they fixed it this go around because that was the case big companies will get their bailouts at any given time what bailout or relief has some of these brands given to their franchisees some of them none and you know when you talk about relief that these brands are giving some of these brands are giving, they're dangling carrots. Oh, we waived this fee, waived that fee. What, from a $10,000 bill, you waive $500 fee? That's a slap in the face. It's an insult. Right, right, right. But, you know, why do they say that they waived all those fees? Because they can tell to their stockholders that they have done something and they just like to categorize that these are the fees that they have waived. When it shows, oh, that's a lot of stuff that these guys have done for their franchisee. That's not true. It's a bunch of BS. Right, right. Yeah, because they can say they've done it, but has it has it made any real impact is really what There's the question no you should be asking. Exactly. Right? You hit the nail on the head. There's no impact on it. So the 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 last thing I'll I'll ask you here is for the future of this hotel industry, which like you said, right, 
98% of hotels in this country are owned by a small family or an individual small business owners. No, they're owned by non-franchisors. Non-franchisors. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Right. So, so, so it will be, so like Hilton and Marriott own some hotels. Okay. They own because they're the franchisor, but they own some key locations. They own like Marriott owns a few hotels in New York city uh, they own a few locations in Florida, whatnot. These are like the upper echelon product usually that they own. But everything else is usually owned by franchisees. And that franchisees could either be a publicly traded company, right, that owns a b- bunch of them, or it's basically a family that owns two, three, four hotels. And that was the 60% number I re- that I, that you Correct. mentioned. So 60, okay, you're right. So correction, so 60% of the... Uh, hotels in this country are owned by small business families, uh, individual owners, etc. So this is that's a huge portion. That is the the base. That's the foundation of the hotel industry in this country. What needs to change for this industry to survive, in your opinion, and for it to thrive? Well, I think a lot of legislation reform needs to happen. Um, Banks, if you would, have to not make it mandatory for hotels to have a franchise. Uh, a lot of uh, hotel franchisors have lobbied that they are required. No, they are not really required. As a matter of fact, go ask the local pizza shop guy versus the Domino guy. Domino guy can sell. I'm going to make this up as an example to just show you the, uh, the, the situation because I've talked to the local Domino guy in my area. And I've also talked to the local pizza shop guy, the local pizza shop guy will sell, let's say 10,000 pies in a week. Okay. He will make, let's say $20,000 on the flip side. The Domino guy had to sell 40,000 pies in a week to make the same 20,000. Why do you need and, a franchise? Because the dominant right. guy had to pay his franchise fees. Right, right. So, so to to fix this, what do we do? Do we just start going independent with our pro- like? What what's the solution? I, right. I think the franchisors need to scale their their model back and their expenses back, and they really need to reinvent themselves. And do something for customer experience instead of basically mandating stuff. If I wanted to change something to improve my guest service experience, they would not allow it. Okay. Like, if, for example, if I wanted to do remote check in at my hotel, they won't let me do it because the brand has not rolled it out to the rest of the customers. Even if I have the technology to do it, they won't let me do it. Even if I want to do it on my dime because it, it makes it easier for my guests to check in. They say, oh, but our other customers are going to be unhappy when they go to our other location. So, no, you cannot do it. I think the brands hold the franchisees back in a lot of situations, too. And, you know, that's what needs to be, you know, be really thought about that. You know, the brands need to do something that will help the franchisee. They want to make all these fees. Stop introducing so many brands. I don't I don't see the need for so many brand names to come up it's like every year there's somebody in one of these top five brands is saying oh we introduce a new brand 
what are you really doing? You're cannibalizing the same market and they need to stop licensing same brands in the same location. I mean, if you walk into certain, go to Baltimore, for example, you're from Maryland and, and go to Baltimore downtown. What's happened to the town? It's a ghost town now. Pre-COVID, it was ghost, right? I don't, and, I've never been there. I'm from Chicago, but I've never been there, honestly. Okay, but, take Chicago, for yeah. example. Go to O'Hare, go to Rosemont area. Yeah. Same issue, right? You have everything's two or three of each brand, right? Absolutely, yeah. without a doubt. Now, what is it? What is happening? Does it mean that those hotels are doing more occupancy? What it's really doing is they're destroying the existing franchisees so they can sell a new license so they can prop up their value. Each franchise license agreement is worth about $1.5 million. So what the franchiser only cares about is to add the number of license agreements. If they add a license agreement, that's $1.5 million valuation increase of their company. On top of that, they can squeeze them for the rest of the 10, 15 years, whatever the license is for. It's all about a squeezing game. And then they find new ways to fail them, right? Have you, you remember those medallia scorings? How about the guest surveys? How horrible are they? Are one-sided. They'll ask those specific questions so they purposely can fail you. Well, you know, I think they certainly, I never agreed with all the questions on those surveys. Not Certainly not all of them. And, you know, I think that the one, the one thing that I always had a problem with is they take the medallia, that's your QA, right? That's your basis for that. But they never took into account, you know, your trip advisor or anything like that. Like your trip advisor could be way better. You could be doing really well on trip advisor, but not doing well on the the brand surveys. And all that they would care about is what what came through on the brand. And don't get me wrong, I empathize, right? Like we talked about, they have shareholders, they have to have systems because they're such big brands. But what we see now is that the you you guys, the owners are the people who the only way these brands have anything, they they have no assets. They're nothing. All they are is a name without the individual owners who are who are running these hotels. Um, so I'm I'm interested to see what the future holds. I, I'm I wonder if we're going to see what more independent said, hotels. What you said was absolutely correct. These franchisors have no skin in the game. They don't own the bricks and mortar. All they have is the building. They don't even own, they don't even have the employees. The employees belong to the hotel operator, to the hotel owner. So guess what? It's the hotel owner who's dealing with everything. So why is it worth paying them a percentage of your fee? Everything's on the internet. I do believe that some franchisors are far better than some of the other ones. And you need to work your way out, figure out which one is the right one. And make sure that, you know, you raise awareness and keep those around. The other ones need to go away. Yeah. Because, and you know what? It, it, it may only just happen naturally over time because owners are going to get smarter. They're going to realize, you know what? Wait, we don't have to rely on this brand who hasn't been there for us. We don't have to do this. Because nowadays, to open up a Hampton Inn doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be successful. Maybe it do was you know what that it way. Cost to build a Hampton Inn? I'd love to know. I'd love to know. A hundred room Hampton Inn can cost you around sixteen to seventeen million dollars. 
Oh my gosh. It's 160,000 of Just rooms off the highway average. somewhere, off the side of the highway somewhere, just 16 yeah. mil, 17 mil. That's stick construction. You're not talking concrete. This is basically built with just like a house, like wood. Yeah. So wow. think about it from a different standpoint that how expensive it is to build. So when a hotel makes, let's say a Hampton Inn makes $3 million in revenue, they need to basically bring to service that $17 million mortgage or it's 17 million. The owner ended up putting, let's say 5 million of their own money because the banks require 35% of their own money to be invested into our deal. So if they invested that, I'm just going to do quick math for you. Let's say 17 million. And then I'm going to say 65% is the debt amount. That's $11 million at let's say 4% interest. I'm going to give it the best interest in the world. Okay. That is about 700,000 principal and interest every month, uh, every year. They have to pay to the bank. So from wow. the $3 million that does in revenue, it only cash flows roughly, roughly, it cash flows 900 to a million dollars before debt service. So from that 900 to a million, you got to take out 700,000. 650 to 700,000 for the mortgage. What are you left with? 200,000. 250,000. So 250 divided by 5 million, uh, 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 250, let's say 300,000 to make a better numbers, right? Divided by, we said 17 million to build the building. It's 11 million mortgage. That's $6 million down payment, right? Divide by 6 million. 5% on your money. Is it worth? 5% of your money? Don't you think I can invest my money in the stock market, do better? Right. And your exit strategy is going to be, I mean, that's and over I can decade, walk away that's decades. Faster. Right. Well, I, I can walk away from the stock market. Like I can buy something and sell something in the within the hour. You can't do that with the hotel building. You're stuck with it. That is completely eye-opening to, to, to know this uh, uh, about you know, what hotel owners are going through and what the current state of, of returns is because I, you could have a rental unit for a, uh, you know, apartment building or something and everybody stays there for a year at, at the very minimum instead of everybody leaving every wait, night and the wait, labor. <laughs> wait, wait till you see what's going to end up happening in the next six months. The government will have to do something for all the multifamily owners because they said that they can't throw all these people out through COVID and right. people were saying rent-free. Now those are the same people filing for bankruptcy because they can't make their mortgage payments to their landlords, uh, their lenders. Because the lender is like, well, you need to pay. I don't care what happened to your business. Well, we were in a pandemic. This was nothing caused by us. So now these, these uh, owners of these multifamily units are losing their buildings, just like the hotel owners are suffering because the police departments are doing nothing about these people who are staying in their hotels for free. There's going to be new lawsuits. I've been speaking to somebody that they said that there's going to be a major lawsuit coming their way, that they're, that they're suing the, the, the governor of a certain state. You know, I was actually waiting for this to happen because a lot of this stuff, they're not even laws that are being signed into place. They're just mandates or just things that they've just basically executive order just pushed through. Uh, and, and I was waiting for some businesses to be like, 
even your restaurants and, and small boutique retailers to say, wait a second, you put us all on lockdown, you mandated all this eviction moratoriums, all that, yeah. but there's no security for the people who invested their money. When are they going to get paid? Exactly. But you know what's the worst part of this? They put these moratoriums in that you can't evict them. And they said nobody can travel. They have major travel bans, national, international, interstate travel is banned. So you you sit there and think about it. Then who is traveling to these hotels? Nobody, right? What they should have done is these governors should have basically shut the hotels down, allowed the hotels to close. It would have been safer. The employees would have been safer. They would have closed. But now they don't have an extra expense of, of paying employees. Yes, the employees were already collecting their, their stimulus checks from the government. Employees don't want to come to work. They're like, oh, we are making more sitting at home right. because we're collecting unemployment and stimulus. Why would they go right. to work? What they should have done, what they did is they actually hurt their hotels by not letting the hotels close because the hotels now cannot even collect insurance proceeds because the government forced them to shut down. So, okay, so... The 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 lenders, however, are there lenders that have loan requirements that say if you shut down, you're no longer a business. So we can basically if you no. close. It, no, no. Okay. What, what happens is a lender basically is going to go after the business owner or the building owner to pay them. That's fine. But. If the, the hotel owners pay insurance. There's a there's a clause in majority of the insurance policies. Hotel owners are allowed to collect if the government basically forces a shutdown. It's called a moratorium Mm. based on government ordinance. Okay, the problem is he said hotels are essential businesses. How the heck is a hotel essential? Who's traveling to the hotels that they're essential businesses that they need to stay open? I mean, you could argue that if somebody needs a place to stay, it's essential. Yes, I get, I get, I can see both sides let, to it. But let's let's say time. let's say this way: they can basically uh, force. Let, if they say all hotels are allowed to close, and whoever wants to stay open can stay open, that would be one thing. And let's put it this way: you know, there's always going to be that one guy who wants to defy the rules, right? Mm-hmm who wants to stay open, they're like, oh, everybody else is closed. I'm going to take everybody's business. Okay, then do that, right? What it is is that if they basically just said per town XYZ, everybody's allowed to close, that would have been a different story because think about it from a different standpoint. You're in Chicago. If you had the number of hotels that are in Schaumburg or Naperville or all these areas, think about it. How many hotels were full? How many hotels were even selling 20 rooms a day? These are 100, 120 room hotels. If they said, you know, these two hotels right off the highway can stay open or the hotels right next to the hospitals can stay open. Okay. You don't need every hotel to stay open. What was the benefit of having 10 hotels at an exit open when nobody's doing business? Well, the the problem I think you 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 mentioned is is valid because it's almost like they may as well have closed the hotels down. The policies in, in self, like the you know travel ban, uh, mandatory quarantine, you know why they didn't close testing, down? mandatory everything. They may as well have closed them down, but you know with those policies, it basically said no business for anybody. Yeah, but you know why they didn't close? 
they didn't they initially the governor of Pennsylvania said the hotels were non-essential and closed. The insurance industry lobbied them to say hotels mm. are essential businesses. So they were forced to stay open. So another So they didn't have to write of, a check because right. otherwise the insurance companies are writing big checks. This would have been an easier fix. I, I I don't I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I think if they basically said, I'm gonna take a let all the people who need to file insurance claims and let's let them do that and let the insurance company pass the claim and bailed out the insurance company, the federal government gave them sure. the stimulus, they would have been far ahead with this thing than giving money to everybody and all that. They would have fixed the problem much faster by basically bailing out because then they would have bailed out not just hotels, hotels, restaurants, every apartment owner for non-collection of rent, everybody. Insurance is the fix for all those industries. Every industry has to have insurance. It's mandatory. So you know, that's a fascinating standpoint. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm not an expert on that, but it sounds like it could work because, and right now we're getting all these complaints about mismanagement of the loan and the funds that got uh, the stimulus funds for businesses. You know that they went and got mismanaged by the wrong companies for the wrong reasons, or they could have just let everybody collect their insurance money that they, you know, the company's already bought into that insurance. Anyway, those insurance plans could have let and them collect the on that and then up. bailed it out and that's send it to, to one industry that could have solved the whole thing. You know, that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. Um, well with that, Rich, I want to say thank you for being on hospitality MD. You offered a lot of insights to me. Um, cause <laughs> I, w- I would love to be a hotel owner one day. Don't get me wrong. You definitely given me a lot to think about as well. Hey, um, you were, you want to buy my hotel? <laughs> I'll give, you, uh, give it to you on the, on the, on the cheap. Well, uh, maybe, uh, maybe we can talk about that, but you know, it's just, uh, it's, it's crazy what's happening right now. And I think for, for our audience, you're going to provide a lot of value for with your sentiment. So I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Thank and you, uh, talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye now. Hey guys, Kyle here again. Just wanted to say thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the show. Your support truly means more to me than you'll ever understand. While you're here, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. It will go a long way in ensuring our message gets shared with the hospitality industry and beyond. Also be sure to check out wwwhospitality md.com to find out what we can do for your hotel. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week on Hospitality MD.